Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt and in this edition I'll be joined by Ingemar Enkvist as he comes to the end of his term as CEO of World Association of Nuclear Operators. He explains how the organisation works and why that means it doesn't always have as high a public profile as you might have expected. We know that the biggest risk to this industry is to have a significant safety event. So members are willing to share their best practices for the benefit of reducing or maximizing safety, because that's key for the future. And as I said, it's key for maintaining the the, the momentum in the new nuclear renaissance we see now. It could change overnight if we have a significant event. So in that sense, in the aspects of nuclear safety, there is no competition, absolutely no competition. And everything is openly shared and there's a mutual support one member is willing to send their best experts to another member to address a, a significant issue because we know the importance of this. So it's like a family. But before that, the big event in November has been the COP27 UN Climate Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. This year, for the first time at a COP, Nuclear has had its own dedicated pavilion space and has been well and truly part of the debate. World Nuclear Association's Jonathan Cobb and Henry Preston were there. It's great to have you here. Jonathan, this wasn't your first COP, but for those who don't know much about it, can you explain what the event is and how nuclear energy fitted into it? Well, in the early days of COP, it was a lot simpler. What governments were doing in the main was setting emission targets, agreeing emission targets amongst themselves. Whereas now it's it's much more about uh, looking at the mechanisms that have to be put in place to allow international collaboration and cooperation in, in dealing with climate change. Because at COPs now, governments just bring their policy measures to the table, state that that's what they're going to do, and then they're assessed to see whether or not they're going to help meet the climate targets, the temperature rise targets that are, are being set now in these broad COP agreements. And it's, it's very different for nuclear too. In the early COPs, there were things called the Kyoto mechanisms. These would be ways in which countries could collaborate on projects to enable the emission savings in one country to be used to meet the targets of another country. And nuclear was excluded from these Kyoto mechanisms. And that all came about from having very large protests, anti-nuclear protests uh, at the COP meetings, a very large presence from the nuclear industry and from young generation uh, workers at the time who were trying to counter that, but in the end, unfortunately, didn't succeed. Now that doesn't come through because countries put forward their own proposals. It's based on their own national policies and those can or can't include nuclear. Perhaps what's disappointing is that at the COPs, even though now we have this stand, this exhibition pavilion, where we have been able to show off what nuclear can do, we've been able to put forward presentations showing different aspects and different issues that are important to nuclear, we're not seeing nuclear represented more broadly in other areas. So there are very few country pavilions that will mention nuclear energy, but many more will mention just renewables. And we see in in some of the texts that come out of the agreements, although they're not saying nuclear should or shouldn't be included, they will talk about the need to increase investment in renewables and mention renewables only, even though there are many different energy options that should be included and indeed many different things that need to be done overall to get emissions down. 
There were lots and lots of different interesting sessions with a wide variety of speakers. Henry, you were particularly interested in the session which took place on Energy Day. Yeah, that's right. So for us in nuclear, one of the key themes uh, to theme days at COP was Energy Day. So energy is what drives our quality of life, um, but it's also, unfortunately, the leading cause for emissions. So the key issue for energy and on Energy Day is discussing you know, how we can provide secure, equitable and sustainable 24-7 clean energy. Uh, we hosted a panel session uh, working together to deliver a clean energy mix on the morning of Energy Day. We had a lineup of speakers predominantly from Canada, um, and where Canada is, of course, a great case study as somewhere that's decarbonised over 80% of its electricity grid. But it wasn't always that way. So Pat Dalzell from Bruce Power, he painted this picture when he was discussing the phase-out of coal in Ontario and how that changed Toronto's sky. It is the single largest GHG emissions reduction initiative in the world, I think, uh, when we phased out coal. And that's great to say, but in my mind, when you really want to try to wrap your head around what that means, I look back at when I first moved to Toronto in the early 2000s, and I remember on any hot summer day, you'd look up at the sky and there was this orange haze in the sky. There was no blue sky. You didn't see it. It was smog. And in 2005, we had 55 smog days in Toronto. It was significant. The decision to phase out coal was a result of what the impact that coal was having on our, on our climate, our environment, on the sky. We phased out coal over a 10-year period. By 2014, we burned our last piece of coal in Ontario. And since that day, there's not been one smog day in Ontario. You look up at the sky on a hot summer day, it is a blue sky. And that's the difference that fighting climate change can make. 70% of the incremental energy needed to phase out coal in Ontario was provided by Bruce Power. Then for increasing energy supply with new nuclear, Minister Pacini from Ontario spoke about the need for improving permitting timelines and collaboration. But then I say I'm here to talk permitting and we want to reduce our timelines. And let's talk about the 50-year-old environmental assessment process in the province of Ontario that hasn't been touched. I mean, I'm not 50 years old. This thing predates me as minister. And, and so they're shocked. I mean, it, it, I usually get a, a tepid response. And then once we ease into a conversation, John, they open up and we get good ideas. Then beyond energy, Pat Dalzell spoke again about additional benefits of nuclear. And this was prompted by a conversation with, with John Gorman from Canada Nuclear Association and, and his socks, which prompted uh, Pat to talk about medical isotopes and how Bruce Power is making a difference. Love the socks. And, and for any of you wondering what those socks are, they're lutetium and cobalt socks, a couple of elements that I'll get into. And John's question was about the economic benefit, some side economic benefits of nuclear. But I think what I want to talk about is, is more about just additional benefits of, of nuclear. And, you know, one thing that, that has touched all of our lives, every single one of us and anybody around the world can relate to this is, is cancer. Nobody can avoid it. It's inevitable. It will touch all of us. It has touched all of us. And the reason I want to talk about cancer is because of what we're doing right now with our power reactors. So for years, we've produced an isotope called cobalt-60, and it's used to sterilize medical equipment. It's used around the world. It has been for decades. A number of years ago, the research reactor at, uh, at Chalk River in Ontario closed, and the supply of something called high-specific activity cobalt-60 was going to disappear. And this is used in a treatment called the gamma knife. And if you can picture a helmet sort of thing with 
200 beams of gamma radiation. The individual beams don't do anything to surrounding tissue, but where they meet at a focal point, they act as this non-invasive knife that can essentially cut out a tumor without having to cut into a person's head. That isotope was at risk of disappearing with the closure of this research reactor. So we worked with our partners at Nordion to change our cobalt-60 process so that we could produce this cancer-fighting gamma-knife cobalt-60 called high-specific activity cobalt-60. And with that change, it set us down a road of, of finding new ways to fight cancer. And Jonathan, what other sessions caught your eye? I was particularly interested in the session on decarbonisation beyond electricity. Electricity is, is something where there are a large range of options for achieving decarbonisation, so nuclear as well as wind, solar, hydro, all the other low-carbon options. Only around a fifth of emissions associated with energy production actually come from electricity production. And so there is an idea that we need to have ways of decarbonising other parts of the energy sector. And that includes production of synthetic fuels, which are low carbon in their production. I spoke to Kirsty Gogan from Terrapraxis, who described a gigafactory. This is a large factory with 10 gigawatts thermal capacity of SMRs, which would be used to make synthetic fuels. And I asked her what kind of scale of replacement for the existing fossil fuel industry would these gigafactories allow? Just to give you an idea, 10 of these uh, medium refinery sized gigafactories, which is the 20 gigawatt thermal facility as an example, 10 of those would entirely replace the UK's current oil and gas consumption with, of course, a tiny environmental footprint and a lot of flexibility about where you locate them. Now, there's a lot of revenue streams from the Gigafactory, not only, you know, power and heat and hydrogen, all of which could be supplied to consumers, you know, within that market, but it's also producing reactors. And this is a kind of a key point, because once you've filled up your reactor farm, and your facility is producing power and heat and hydrogen, because, of course, the Gigafactory could also be have the option to be connected to the grid and support future electricity grid with high penetrations of wind and solar to supply electricity during a seasonal lull. But actually, once your reactor farm is filled up, you can then also start sending those, keep making the reactors and send them out to uh, repower coal plants or to you know, be co-located with industrial facilities to supply heat directly to support the decarbonisation of industry as well. And it was also really interesting to hear from Edward Stones from Dow, because what Dow have done is set a target to decarbonise by 2050 and have quite aggressive reductions in emissions on the way to 2050. And they've looked at all the places within their production facilities, their furnaces and other large scale uses of fossil fuel at the moment and have looked at what would be the best replacement. In some cases, their assessment is it'd be best replaced by renewables or a combination of renewables, hydro and storage. But they've also identified where they believe nuclear technology is going to be the most appropriate. And that's particularly the case for the production of high temperature heat. So they formed a partnership with X Energy. They're producing a gas called high temperature reactor. And they're looking to deploy that by around 2030. About a year ago, my CEO declared at Sarah Week that we were going to do nuclear. You know, he did this without telling the rest of us, by the way. And he said we were going to deploy nuclear at some of our Gulf Coast and our facilities in North America. About six months ago, we, we announced a partnership with a company called X Energy, where they have a, 
a small modular reactor. It's a gas-cooled reactor. It's HALU technology, and it's inherently safe. About 200 megawatts thermal scale, about 80 megawatts uh, electric scale, which fits very nicely with the scale of our facilities. And that approach by Dow Chemical I thought was really interesting because I think what one of the things that having the nuclear pavilion can do going forward, it can allow us to talk about examples where the nuclear industry and indeed industry using nuclear technology more broadly is actually going to be able to deliver emission reductions, which is something a lot more practical than perhaps the the more nebulous discussions that take place and the agreements that are reached by governments. It's not just about agreeing to something, it's implementing the actions that will help us achieve the goals. And this is what things like what was described by Edward Stones can do. But in order to bring forward these new uses of nuclear technologies beyond traditional electricity production is going to need change. And that's something that Alice Cuna da Silva particularly highlighted in some of her remarks. Bringing revolutionary technology and the way we do business now doesn't fit. So we need to, as, as Christy and Edward very well put, we need to change and innovate in several different aspects in order for us to be able to implement properly and leverage all the capabilities of what we are bringing in a way that is it's more efficient, it's better used. So if we continue with the same business models, with the same mindset, with the same way we do things, we are not actually leveraging everything, all the power that we are bringing with this revolutionary technology. So I think both the market, both the nuclear industry and, and energy industry all need a mindset shift and work together to find these different innovative solutions for all these points that are needed, including the licensing process, for example. So, Henry, what was the atmosphere like and did it feel like progress was being made on the climate objectives generally from the event? So COP continues to grow in its importance and it, it does continue to bring in a diverse range of delegates from across the world. And the Atmosphere Climate Pavilion, where we were based, that was nearby the Youth Pavilion, which, of course, had lots of energy, lots of enthusiasm, and it was bringing in quite an atmosphere. But it was a very different experience to COP26, which with it being much warmer, with the greater logistical challenges to hosting that many people in China or shape compared to a city like Glasgow last year. The, the, the big theme around this COP, we were told, was implementation. Um, but sadly, I don't think there was as much news or as the same level of output from negotiations in the news this year. So that there does seem to be some progress on loss and damages financing, which Jonathan mentioned, and that kind of goes beyond just the mitigation side. However, a lot of the talk has been a bit of a gloomy reminder. During the opening, there was the quote was, a climate hell is impending. And just before COP27, the UN even said, there was no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees C in place. So clearly there's a lot of work to be done there. But what really brings us is to that is the need for solutions. So World Nuclear Association Director General Sama Bilbao Leon said herself, governments need energy policy to realise those climate targets. And on Solutions Day in our final session, COP27 and beyond, Sama spoke to a range of speakers. Alina Toplinski from Pillsbury Law said of the need to include nuclear in overall energy conversations and to continue not just on nuclear-friendly pavilions. You've had nuclear events at other pavilions as well, uh, but still there is a lot of focus on renewables, which is great. 
but nuclear, I think, still has a ways to go. And I'm already starting to think to the UAE next year, what can we do to make sure that nuclear is not just included in the nuclear sort of friendly pavilions, but it's included overall as part of the discussion. You know, historically, we've had projects mainly financed through government funds or the funds of very well-capitalized electric utilities. That's not going to be the case going forward as programs expand, both in you know, mature markets, uh, which only have X amount of money to put towards new nuclear, but also all of these you know, newcomer countries, some of them in the developing world that don't have these funds. And we are here in this you know, section C, where there's lots of different you know, international financing institutions. You know, the Green Fund is right over there, but nuclear isn't really being financed by these institutions. So I think we really need a push towards a significant and transformative solution to financing new nuclear towards climate change mitigation goals. Clearly, finance is critical to engage with, with going forward. But something else that was very interesting to hear from the Japan Atomic Industrial Forum was the need for greater engagement with the Asian nuclear market at future COPs. As everybody knows, um, Asia is one of the biggest nuclear markets in the world. But ironically, my organization, Japan Atomic Interest Forum, is the only association ever participated at COP so far. And I believe a lot of the partners, not only in Japan, but across the whole Asian countries, but they don't know about what we are doing here. Like they don't even know we are here yet. So that's very unfortunate. And so that's one of the things that one of the leaders in the entire Asia countries, I think that Japan or our organization has the mission to go back and to spread the news. Let people know that we are here and we should be part of it. And lastly, I'll highlight Tyson Culver, the director of the documentary Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. He spoke here about how nuclear should do more humble bragging. It's okay to brag, and that's what I said in the thing. He liked, he liked that, and I think it is okay to brag. I think that's something nuclear needs to be doing. You need to be talking it up, because your competitors do it, and we're all well aware of that. And, and I don't think this is anything about, like, no, we're the best, no, we're the best. I think I, I'm very much an all-of-the-above solutions-oriented person, but my gosh, there are just so many benefits to nuclear, and I think that really sharing them and sharing them in snackable content ways that that folks not just in this room or at this conference can understand but in ways that just ordinary joes like like i am before i started doing this um when it comes to energy um yeah i i think bragging is one thing to do just humble bragging would, would work great and he mentioned there about snackable content and went on to provide advice for how nuclear advocates can package information which is often linked to the human story of energy access my wife and I own a video production company, and we have a mantra. When people think, they decide. When people feel, they act. You need real human stories again and again and again and again. And, and don't stop. Don't get one story out there and talk about it for three months. Get 50 stories out there and talk about it for a quarter. And then get another 50, and then get another 100. You need to show what life looks like when people have electricity and when they don't. When countries have electricity, have 24-7 power, and when they don't, and what it looks like when they don't, what happens to hospitals, what happens to women and girls, what happens to, I mean, what happens to living in countries where women and girls aren't able to do th the things that we're able to do, what happens when you have access to information, all that has to do with electricity, and one of the best providers of energy and electricity, we're, we're sitting right here, it's nuclear. 
And Jonathan, how did it feel from the nuclear energy sector's point of view? It felt really good and it's been a, a big step forward. We, we've had Nuclear for Climate who've done a great job over the last few years in highlighting to delegates the, the role that nuclear energy can play and really helping get nuclear's foot in the door and getting us a seat at the table in terms of being part of the general discussion. So this year, having got our place at the table, we had to start the discussion. And that's what I think the pavilion helped us do. It was a first of a kind with everything that that implies, but it was very successful. And I think something that I pick out is the fact from the speakers that Henry just described in our last session, Almost all of them were from outside the industry. So we got a lot of success in bringing people from outside the nuclear industry in to talk about nuclear energy in a very positive way. What we need to do, I think, going forward into the next COP is to get that message out away from the pavilion to other people, both at COP and also those people who might be able to listen or watch the sessions that we have online. We need to get that message out further. It's a great positive attitude at the moment amongst all those exhibition stands there's not the controversy there's not the conflict that dogs some of the earlier cops but it also feels that that is becoming separated even more from the negotiations themselves and so the negotiations amongst governments seem to be struggling to go forward and unless we can bring the solutions that everybody is discussing in the exhibitions and make that part of what governments themselves can agree to do and put on the table, we're not going to get the governmental agreement to go forward. And without that governmental agreement, intergovernmental agreement to go forward, where there is certainty that governments across the world are going to act and aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that's not going to provide the certainty enough to people to invest in low carbon technologies and get us to that net zero target. It sounds like you had a fascinating time. I'm guessing that 2023 will see COP28 take place, with nuclear looking to take on a big role again, I guess. Where's that one going to be? That's going to be in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. And that is something actually uh, a young engineer from ENIC, uh, she put forward in that last session as well. It's certainly a desire to demonstrate what nuclear energy can do in a country that is looking to decarbonise using a very broad range of low-carbon technologies. It's going to be interesting to find out in a year's time how things have developed, but hopefully we'll be speaking to you before then as well, back on the World Nuclear News podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot again to Jonathan Cobb and Henry Preston from World Nuclear Association for joining us and telling us all about COP27 in Egypt. Thank you. I'm delighted now to be joined by Ingemar Enkvist, CEO of World Association of Nuclear Operators. Hello and good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the industry issues, could you give us a brief outline of your background and career and how you ended up as CEO at Wano? Well, that is a rather long story, but I will, it's a funny story, so I will tell it to you. My basic training is teaching. I'm actually qualified for teaching math, physics, and chemistry. But at the time at the university, um, I wanted more physics, and that was only evening classes. So a friend and I, we were sitting and saying, okay, should we have just days off and just go to evening class? No, let's, let's take some class during the day as well. And we looked through the catalog at the time. There was a, you know, paper uh, catalog of 
potential classes to take, and we weren't interested in any of them. So I said, okay, I'll close my eyes and go up and down with a finger, and where I stop, that's the class we will take. And it was nuclear chemistry. And none of us were particularly interested in nuclear chemistry, but we agreed this is what we will do during the days. And finally, that led to I, I have a PhD in nuclear chemistry because I got so fascinated. So I worked 10 years at the university, uh, head of the, uh, at the end, head of the nuclear chemistry department before I joined the industry in 1996. And that's how I joined the industry because of, of this random selection of a, of a daytime class. And then I worked in different roles. I started off with managing core design and, and fuel management at the power plant and did that for a number of years. And then there was a political decision to face out that plant and I moved to another one. And I've done different things at the stations, uh, such as uh, chief of staff, engineering director, uh, plant manager, site vice president at different stations, and then uh, finally CEO of utility having an interest in all the operations of the Swedish nuclear fleet. And in 2015, done that, and it was difficult times with a, a very challenging electricity market, great investments, enormous amount of money involved, and, and not very bright future. I was sort of done with it for the time. And I think I was actually not selected for a promotion. And, and a, But I also had the question from one of our WANA members, if I would be interested in becoming the director of WANA Paris Centre. So I gave it some thought over summer and in August, I decided, yes, that would be interesting. And I, I started spring 2016 as the director of WANA Paris Centre and enjoyed that for about three and a half years. At the end, in, during 2019, I got the question whether I was interested to become the CEO of WANA in June 2019, the decision was to appoint me and I started 1st of January 2020. So it's a long story, but it's kind of funny one. I'm, I'm here by, by accident. That's amazing. Do you use that same sort of lucky dip system for picking winners in sporting events? I'm not a gambler at all, so uh, I don't use that kind of thing. It's the only time I've, I've done it like that. But it was uh, that was the best price I could get and the best win I ever had. Yeah, it was a very lucky choice and an excellent origin story. So the association, generally known as WANO, has a high profile within the sector, but a fairly low public profile. Uh, for those who don't know much about it, could you set out a bit more about what it is and what it does, please? And how important do you think it is for the industry that there is such an organisation? Yes, uh, WANO is a member organisation. It's really important to emphasise a member organisation. That means that, and it means that all commercial operators of nuclear power are members of WANO. We have about 430 reactors as members because each reactor is a member and all over the world. So it's really a global organisation. It was established in 1989 after the Chernobyl accident when the industry realized we cannot afford to have any stations around the world operating in isolation. At the time, there were basically no oversight from the international community on the Soviet Union stations. I'm not saying that led to the accident, that's different. But I think the industry realized we need to work together to prevent another accident. So in 
So Moana was established in 1989, and one of the core, the first pillars of Moana was to exchange experiences. We do that openly within the organization, which is quite unique that we share events that has happened at plants, um, could be component failures, could be whatever things that happen in every uh, industry. We collect that in a database and it's open for all members to read and understand and try to avoid similar things happening. That was the core when WANA was established. Later, we also introduced what we call peer reviews. And that is pulling together an international team to go to a station, some 15, 20 people going for two or three weeks, reviewing all aspects of safety at the station and leave the station with a report, what we believe gaps to, you could say, excellence or gap to excellent global standards with recommendations for the plant, what to work with the coming years. That's also a very important thing. And it should be seen, this is not an inspection because we are not interested in compliance in any way, compliance to, to national regulations. We measure the standards uh, to best practices in the industry. So we leave the station with a number of recommendations, what to work with, and then we follow up on these recommendations, ensure that there is a, an effective action plan in place for the station to improve safety and performance. Because the one mission is only to maximize safety and performance of, of the stations. We are not an advocate for nuclear, for instance, and we only work for our members. And usually, which is a little bit different from today, we have a very low public profile because um, we usually uh, just operate between members and, and, and the one offices around the world. We have uh, regional offices in Atlanta, Paris, Moscow, Tokyo, and London, uh, which is more a coordination office. And we have a branch office in Shanghai, which was established just recently. I guess what you're saying is that it's like a safe space for the operators to be able to share their experiences and advice. And I know we are sometimes question why everything is so confidential within the organization, because we have strict confidential policies. And the reason is we want to maintain the openness by the operating plants to discuss their own weaknesses without this becoming public in the country they operate or having interference from regulators. As we measure, which is so important, we don't measure or check compliance. We measure to the best practices and the gap, but that is not always understood. So we are basically, we don't have a public profile very much, but there are occasions where we actually believe it, it is beneficial for the our mission to maximize safety that we also are a bit public, like I participated in COP27. Can you tell me a bit about WANO's new Action for Excellence initiative? In, in 2019, there was a, a request from the members that WANO should change its operating model to be more effective supporting stations. But what it really comes down to is a much closer interaction between WANO and the individual members. We will monitor performance much closer. I spoke about peer reviews, which we do. We do did those every four years. It usually had a follow-up after two years. But we have realized that is not frequent enough, the interactions, to understand whether the plans, action plans are really effective 
and uh, closing these gaps to excellence. So we will have more of data analytics. We will have more or less quarterly feedbacks to our members on their journey to excellence and where they need to focus. So it's about performance monitoring, but it's also more effective support, such as uh, what we call organizational diagnosis. We understand that stations that struggle with their actual plans is really not about the activities. It's more how the organization takes on the challenge and how the leadership and how the whole organization is integrated in focusing on targets to improve. So we do this as a mission. We can also do what we call recovery if a station has struggled for a long time with addressing some specific problems. We can send an expert team where we gather the best expertise globally, not particularly from a regional center, but we reach out to all the membership and say, is there someone who is, has experience in addressing this and that has been effective or that was not effective, so it's not being repeated? So both successes and failures are important. So with the seven years that you've been in Paris and London with Wano, how has it changed or developed your view of the global nuclear industry? Indeed. First of all, I now have a global view, which I didn't before I joined Wano. And I think I see this uh, in, in several member organizations that they are too focused on their own business and not having a, an outlook of best practices in the world. So I've said this uh, openly within the, in meetings and so on. I wish I would have done this 15 years ago because I could have contributed so much more to my company with the, 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 the view of what good looks like in, in the industry and be inspired of all the good things other members do, which I could use. Basically, we, uh, you're, you're allowed to steal best practices and use them yourself without paying for it more than a membership fee. And that's the beauty of this organization and the, the community of operators. So, you know, it has definitely changed my view of the global uh, nuclear business. I have insights of, of the cultural differences. I understand that the language we use will be interpreted in different ways in different cultures. And I also understand now how large the actual language barrier is, which we are trying to address that problem. Because English is, for many a language you're comfortable with. But for many of our members, it is a, a bit of a struggle. I'm guessing that a war in Europe, one which has seen a direct impact on nuclear power plants, was not something you expected to ever see. With the organisation having membership from all nuclear energy producing countries, including both sides in the conflict, how have you sought to ensure the safety of nuclear facilities and supported members in what is such a difficult situation? It's true. It's a very difficult situation. And we are deeply concerned about the conditions this station is operating in. Really essential is that we stay above geopolitics as an organization. Uh, I've worked very hard with maintaining the unity within WANA, not taking any sides in the conflict, focus on our mission to maximize safety, to help our members ensure safety of the plant. Of course, in the, for the plants in Ukraine, this is 
very, very difficult right now. And particularly the station Saporizhia, which is in, has been in a battle zone for quite a while. And we have limited uh, possibilities to go on site. It is practically impossible right now. But we have also during this journey, and uh, you know, this is what I think about every day. Even before I go to sleep, I think about, is there anything we can do for mitigating the risks they are exposed to in, in Ukraine right now? And one way of dealing with this has to be establish a very close cooperation with the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, and close contact with the Director General, uh, Rafael Grossi, not on a day-to-day -day basis, but more, we are available for each other 24-7 and exchange uh, sometimes text messages in the middle of the night when we think about something. And we are really supporting the ideas of, of a protection zone around Saporizhia. This is very difficult to achieve, and WANA doesn't have the possibilities to negotiate with nations. That's what IAEA has, so we have to rely on their efforts but we have publicly and repeatedly expressed our support to IAEA. But we also are engaged through our Atom, the Ukrainian operator, is, is a member of our Paris Center. And there have been missions completed on behalf of Atom support missions, although being done mostly virtually, we haven't been able to travel to Ukraine right now, but we, we are in close contact with that operator and understanding the situation, because it's not only about Saporizhia. They're operating other power plants also in, in Ukraine, and the situation for them is also difficult. But also, the Ukrainian regulator has close contact with, uh, with IAEA, and uh, we try to co coordinate our efforts to support them. But I also have contacts with uh, Ros Energoatom, which is the, our Russian member, which is involved in this as well, as we read in the papers. And I would say we have a climate that we can actually discuss difficult things. We are not pointing fingers anywhere. We are more um, focused on, is there anything we can do? So I have regular contacts with both our Ukrainian member as well as our Russian member. And the WANA board, we have a board for WANO, and uh, there was a, a global meeting we had in Prague uh, some weeks ago, and there was a resolution from the board that the members of WANO requested WANO to become more actively engaged in the situation in Saporizhia. And I'm trying to work out what possibilities do we have to support them. But it's really complicated, and we must always act in a way that we have the communication channels open Yes, the IAEA are continuing their efforts to set up, as you mentioned, a protection zone around uh, Zaporizhia. And I think we heard recently from the Director General saying that he's continued to talk to both sides to try and agree the details of it. As you say, it's a very complicated situation. Deciding on the size of the protection zone, what it would cover, and also the location is just very, very complicated at the moment. I guess that these events have also increased a trend seen during your time as CEO of countries turning to or back to nuclear energy as a low-carbon energy source, which now also tackles the prime issue of energy security. From your unique perspective, how do you feel now about the outlook for nuclear? The outlook for nuclear is different from what it used to be 10 years ago. There was a, we spoke about the nuclear renaissance uh, before 2011. 
there were uh, investment decisions on uh, the way for lifetime extensions. You know, I used to work for the company E.ON at the time, which it was uh, is German-Swedish utility and uh, was part of uh, managing the Swedish-German nuclear fleet. And we were, we were about to sign contract with suppliers for lifetime extension of the German units. That changed overnight after Fukushima. So it, the nuclear renaissance stopped. I see a new renaissance of nuclear. And I, and I guess what's driving this is our concerns about climate change. The discussion is completely different why to have nuclear now than it used to be. Before it was more a business opportunity. Now I think there is a growing understanding how important the nuclear technology is to address carbon emissions and reduce carbon emissions. And if we really want to stick to the agreement to be carbon neutral by 2050, I see no option to um, not use nuclear technology. But there has also been development of, uh, in 20, 10 years, 15 years ago, we spoke mostly about large-scale nuclear reactors. Now there are many concepts of more modular, smaller reactors, which would be easier to deploy, would be, which would be potentially cheaper. And we see them as potentially using them as a heat source for conventional coal-fired plants to take the boiler out and use a modular reactor as a heat source to provide steam to a conventional uh, power plant. That concept is uh, is being developed and, and there is a greater interest in doing this as countries need to reduce their carbon emissions. And by 2030, we, should, we have targets. That is a, a very challenging target by 2030, as we are soon in 2023. So it's only seven years away. But yes, that's one part. Technology uh, drives a, a new future for nuclear. But I also think this is a, a sort of a, a generation issue. In my country, Sweden, we had a referendum in 1980. And the outcome was to phase out nuclear by 2010. Now, it didn't happen in 2010 as we are still operating nuclear power plants. But many of those who took part in that uh, referendum still have their beliefs from the 1980s. But there is a new generation coming. And I think the new generation is focusing on what we need to achieve rather than the emotional, um, emotional perception of, of nuclear. So as long as we can operate plants safely, with high reliability, the younger generation sees this as an important tool for addressing the, the, the emissions of carbon and reducing the emissions of carbon. So I think it has, it's definitely a change and we see a, a, a tremendous growing interest in, in investing in nuclear. But I will also say that in some countries, the political system hasn't changed as rapidly as the public. There is sometimes in some countries a gap between public perception of this and the political perception. For making this uh, transition or phasing out carbon sources, we need stability and energy policies that last more than a mandate period, like four years. The industry needs at least a horizon of 20 years. So I would wish nations would have the courage to decide on energy policies which become independent of four-year elections, because that's still the financial risk for investors. The political risk is still too significant.
So do you think that's a sort of main challenge to nuclear fulfilling its potential? That's one of the major challenges, yes, I would say so. From a technical point of view, I think we are more or less ready to contribute to this transition. It takes investment capital. I think we need political acceptance. We also need, of course, basically public acceptance. That's crucial. That's part of how societies work. Without public acceptance, the financial risk is anyway too great. There is no way you can introduce uh, or expand the nuclear uh, sector without there is a public support for it. But the public support is growing rapidly. As an industry, as a sector, how well do you think that nuclear works together? I mean, you're a global organisation and there's competition, as we've seen recently with some of the contracts for new business being fought over. But probably as much as any other industry, the fortunes of all the businesses in it are sort of intertwined to some extent. It is. And, you know, uh, as I said, WANA was created in 1989. Since then, we have collected operating experience from all these plants that have been members and have become members of WANA. Once you become member of WANA and pay the membership fee, you get free access to all this information, which is quite unique. You don't have to invest. You just pay the membership fee and you're welcome to take part of everything we do. So in that sense, of course, the industry is very closely related. But yes, still operators are competitors on markets. But we know that the biggest risk to this industry is to have a significant safety event. It will affect all operators around the world. And that is what what unites operators, this understanding of being hostages of each other, more or less. So members are willing to share their best practices for the benefit of maximizing safety, because that's key for the future. And as I said, it's key for maintaining the momentum in the new nuclear renaissance we see now. It could change overnight if we have a significant event. So in that sense, in the aspects of nuclear safety, there is no competition, absolutely no competition. And everything is openly shared and there's a mutual support. One member is willing to send their best experts to another member to address a a significant issue because we know the importance of this. So it's like a family. This industry, we are a family where we meet not very often, but, you know, we discuss what has happened the last four years or three years and and anything new from your side and in it. And so it's really a beautiful industry to work in. I'm not saying it's completely unique because I know the airline industry also has a a, a good system for sharing experiences. Events on one model, a plane model, is reported globally for other operators to to be aware of. But I think that this industry has developed this far beyond what we see in any other sectors. You mentioned you're at COP27. As we've been hearing already, uh, nuclear had its own pavilion there for the first time. Uh, How how did the event go? It was quite interesting. It was not the first nuclear event because we had something in COP26 as well in Glasgow. But now there was the first time we had a nuclear pavilion and it was organised by IEA. But we were also contributors to this and many other nuclear organisations such as World Nuclear Association and so on was interesting discussions. Clearly, a lot of focus on small modular reactors, what needs to be in place to make these fulfill its its potential of addressing carbon emissions. 
But it was also part of the human aspects of this and how we attract talent to the industry in the future and, and the importance of diversity. There were new faces I haven't seen before coming from other sectors being interested in this because I think all of us at the conference were really focused on climate change and addressing the, the, the carbon emission problem. And from my point of view, time is over, long over, to discuss whether we should have this low carbon technology or that low carbon technology. I think everyone now understands we need to embrace all technologies which reduces our carbon footprint, whether it's wind, solar, um, I don't know, tide power or you name it, and nuclear. Slightly linked, I guess, to what you were just saying. Uh, Wano was one of the co-founders of World Nuclear University. And so that's one possible answer to my next question. But what advice would you give to young people considering nuclear as a career now? Well, uh, I can talk from experience having sent a few individuals in my past to uh, the university. The feedback I got from them was that was the best experience ever with so many things they took away from this. I really had a great impact on their career. So I can only encourage these young talents to work and convince their management to be sent to the university because the experience is quite unique. That's excellent feedback to have. And finally, your three-year term of office ends at the end of 2022. What can we expect to see you doing next? What you cannot expect me to do is sit in the park and feeding the ducks. I will do something different. And as I said, this is a family and I don't know how to say goodbye. So I will try to find a way to stay in touch with my family, which are the operators around the world. I don't know how, I don't know what. I want to be a part of the future as well. The SMR development, the nuclear renaissance, it's just impossible to withdraw from all this. I will probably be self-employed and work part-time or something. I'm still focused on completing things here in Wano. That's my main focus. And, you know, we spoke about the situation in Ukraine. It takes a lot of my time. So I will not sort of gradually phase out. I will work until the last day of December and then think about what to do in the future. We'll see what the future brings. Okay, well, that's great to hear. And I look forward to seeing your next moves in 2023. So am I. Well, that's about all we have time for now. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links to further information about the topics covered, as well as a link to sign up to our daily or weekly email newsletters. And do feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next edition of the World Nuclear News.